All right, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Soccer Hour here on KMBR 1050, brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers. We've got a good one here tonight, as we are joined by author Ken Bensinger, who has a new book out called Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. This book is published by Simon & Schuster. It is indeed available on Amazon.com. You can find it at Barnes & Noble and your local independent book dealers. Ken will be doing a reading at Books, Inc. in Berkeley on Thursday night at 7 o'clock, and hopefully after this will be followed by a few pints at a local pub that Ken will decide upon but we've got him now here on the sock hour Ken what's going on man how are you doing I'm very good thanks uh, thanks so much for having me on the show no I'm really excited for this and I'm very much looking forward uh, to discussing this and I guess before we get into the details of your book and this story which is uh, tremendous um, on on numerous levels I guess I'll just ask you as a as a sports fan are you ever surprised when we get into these large stories of corruption and just overall scandal like I've had a running joke for the past couple years of um, the IOC FIFA and the NCAA all just trying to one-up each other on who's going to come up with the most heinous scandal and actually (laughs) FIFA and 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 Qatar or Qatar whatever we're calling it that this week that one has kind of taken them to the to the next level because that's just a whole different uh, ball game with what's been going on over there but I mean do, do you as a sports fan did this story or do the other stories where there's so much money involved are, are you still shocked by the scandal you know i think um at a certain point as you sort of imply you get you get numb to it but i think it's important not to so I, sometimes i try to take a breath and look at it again and and look at the details it, it um kind of reminds me that when you look at the specifics of one kind of corrupt act it, it can have more of an emotional impact than mm-hmm. the larger sort of um, just looking at the entire broken institution, um, that feels sort of cold and, and too massive. Um, but, but, and when I do that, I'm often surprised because the depths of depravity and, and corruption that individual, uh, uh, soccer officials have exhibited over the years is truly shocking. And that's a, that's always an, a reminder, um, you know, of how bad it is. And I think it's important to remain shocked because I think it's when we get numb to it that we stop caring about whether it'll change and we just accept it as something as inevitable as the weather. Yeah, um, you know, I, uh, in the news this week, I, I just saw something that people got upset about, and I was shocked about, which was that FIFA, despite all the scandal, um, released its new ethics code and has revised it so that the word corruption no longer is inside the ethics scandal, and it's no corruption is no longer under FIFA rules a punishable offense, um, and that's just a particularly sharp reminder once again of how things are in Zurich, where FIFA is based. Um, and as a sort of a coda, they also added a new defamation clause so that any soccer official who speaks out publicly against FIFA can get banned from two to five years. So that's all, that really actually managed to shock me. Yeah, I, I saw that and I and I laughed because it was you have to laugh or you have to cry in those situations because it's the audacity of a statement like that. It, it just it blows your mind. It's it's like they're telling everybody. Well, we we know that you know what we're doing here. We're just going to try and sweep it under the rug in a new manner. Yeah, exactly. And that's just that's just very emblematic of it. I mean, I think one of the things lots of people want to know from me in the wake of all, all, all the arrests and the criminal case, which I hopefully we'll get into in a little bit, is you know is, is everything better now? Is all the is all the are the problems solved? And I really. Um, I, I regret to inform your, your audience. I don't think so. I think that the cultural problems of the sport are quite old at this point, and I think it's it's overly optimistic to think we can um, solve them in just a couple of years. Uh, the optimistic take would be, you know, that they're solvable at all. I mean, I don't want to 
dwell too much into the darkness that lies in the hearts of men. But um, uh, international sports have seem to be very closely attuned to corruption, and and it's not just limited to soccer, but soccer being the most popular sport in the world and one of the most uh, sort of uh, most attractive to all the money and interests ends up being um, a nexus where so much of it happens. And to clean that up is just not going to be easy. We just watched the World Cup in Russia, which is the whole story of how it came to Russia and all the other implications is what your book is about. And it was a, a phenomenal tournament. Um, was were, were you pleased that it was such a positive tournament or was there a part of you that – was thinking they don't deserve to have this on such a positive scale because it was it is widely being regarded as the best World Cup ever. I mean, I, someone told me, and you should fact check me on this, but um, there was only one zero zero draw in the entire uh, tournament. That and sounds if that's right. True. If that's that's incredible because I think back to watching World Cups where it just felt like every match was Paraguay tying someone zero zero <laughs> over and over again, and. Um, and so that's really incredible to testament to how good the, the action in the field was. But, you know, um, uh, as great as that was, we kept the sort of the cutaways were pictures of, um, of Vladimir Putin chortling away with sort of dictators up in the president's box. And I think that's for me, that was the big takeaway was that Vladimir Putin turns out to throw really good parties. And I, I think that, <laughs> you know, strong men and, and dictator type people often are really good at that at throwing a big party at, in their own honor and um, and pulling off PR coups. And I think he did that, you know. I mean, um, uh, I know this isn't a political show, but it, it doesn't escape my notice or many other people's notice that the day after uh, the World Cup ends, Putin flies from Moscow to Helsinki to meet with President Trump. It yeah. was like part of, part of the victory tour, you know. It was all was all part of that. And in that press conference, Putin ends it with a, a, a World Cup game ball in his hand, mm -hmm. which he gives to President Trump um, as sort of a reminder, you know, this is this is my event, and now now that I've done it, you can have it sort of thing. Again, we are talking to author Ken Bensinger, who has a book out, Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. Let's talk about this and how the World Cup came to be in Russia in 2018. And I guess the story starts in 2010 it's such a tangled web is that the appropriate place to start to talk about when that vote happened and when, when we started learning after that of all the different um deal wheelings and dealings that led to it going to russia i mean i defer default to you where do we start this story so the story really um probably starts slightly earlier than that vote i mean if, if what the story if the story of what people want to hear the story i told in my book is how the scandal uh blew up where it, what the roots of it are you really have to go back to the end of 2009 and that's when um, england which was bidding for the world cup alongside of russia sort of in competition with russia and also in competition with spain and portugal who had a joint bid and um, belgium and holland who had another uh, joint bid um, england um, decided that uh, although they had the best sort of bid on paper the best bid book the best stadiums etc um, that they'd better buy some insurance. And the way they did that was to hire um, some experts and consultants who could provide them information about their competition. And the person they hired um, ends up becoming uh, increasingly a sort of a signal person in, in modern history, uh, much larger even than any sports scandal. Um, the person they hired was a recently retired MI6 agent, mm -hmm. which is MI6, of course, is Britain's um, international spy agency, the sort of equivalent of the CIA. Um, and he's a recently retired MI6 agent with a Russia expertise. 
And uh, his name will be familiar probably to everyone listening, which is Christopher Steele. Christopher Steele was brought on. It was one of his first uh, contracts as an independent private researcher. He was brought on to do research about competing bids, in particular Russia. So that's really the beginning of the saga. Him brought in, innocently enough, just to see what Russia and others are up to. It's important to remember that at this point in time, at this juncture, um, Russia was not the Russia we think of today. Russia was this was a, a happy, warm, fuzzy Russia. <laughs> this was this was the remember if you can remember the the reset that President Obama talked about the Russian reset, and we were getting along fairly well with them. They were talking about um, joining us in different kinds of sanctions and aligning with us in the UN and all kinds of nice things, and we were playing along well. Um, so no one really had too many suspicions about what Russia was up to, um, but. Uh, Chris Steele began digging, and starting in late 2009 and into early 2010, he began finding troubling things about Russia's bid to host the World Cup. Despite the fact that they, um, on paper, were very vastly inferior, um, and despite the fact that their presentations were downright embarrassing every time they, they presented their case to FIFA voters, um, he got the impression from sources that Russia was in it to win it. And then Vladimir Putin, a guy who is famously not a soccer fan, right? His his go-to sport is hockey. And if you go on YouTube, you'll see videos of him playing hockey. And honestly, it's worth it because it's one of those things where he goes on, puts in a hockey uniform, and then miraculously scores 10 or 12 goals in one match <laughs> versus, the, you know, the best players in Russia who are pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so that's his interest. So the fact that he's interested in soccer – a sport he just doesn't care for really gets Chris Steele's radar up. Um, and um, it so happens that he had already built built a relationship with the FBI, um, which had been investigating um, an illegal sports book that was being run out of all places, the Trump Tower. Um, and there was an FBI agent who was specialized in Russian organized crime who had gone to London to get information on that, on that particular uh, organization. And, um, they had the relationship, and so by by mid twenty ten, when Steele uh, is pretty convinced that Russia is up to no good, he calls the FBI agent back to London and says, essentially, "I think you need to, I think you need to look into FIFA." Is is this um, is that when Steve Berryman came into play? Is that where his role in all this as an IRS special, special agent? Yeah, no, he didn't. Steve Berryman was not in the scene yet, and he, of course, his arrival um, is critical to the case. Um, but at the time, he had no idea and wasn't involved at all. Um, this was just the FBI, and the FBI was was looking for for what they were looking for is international money laundering mm-hmm. cases, and they thought they could somehow show that Russia and F- and FIFA were illegally sending money back and forth or using illegal funds in some way across uh, across international borders. So that was their hope for the case, and um, they opened a case. I went back to New York, found a prosecutor in the federal district that includes Brooklyn and they opened and they went they sort of went for it but they didn't they didn't really know how to build the case they didn't even really know what FIFA was and to be honest they were kind of lost um so you asked about Berryman well he comes in a year later if we flash forward a year by then Russia has indeed won the bid just as Christopher Steele feared he would um and in that same vote of course Qatar beat the U.S. um and what in that vote by the way is like one of the most fraught in the history of the sport if not the most fraught um and a flash forward a year later, and the FBI is still scratching his head. They can't figure out how to prove this case. And that's when this guy, Steve Berryman, you mentioned, gets involved. Now, let, let's flash back to that vote, because what I've read about this situation is that when FIFA is getting together and doing this voting process, um, that 
there's even at the table when they're voting, that's still rife with bribery and money exchanging hands, even when it's at that late of a stage. Yeah, I mean, there's many stories about last minute uh, last minute deals in the history of FIFA, all the way back at least to. Um, well, at least to 1998, when Sepp Blatter was first elected president, there were many stories that in the hotel in Paris where, where the vote was held the night before, um, there was there was people running around with bags of money, handing them out and sliding them under hotel room doors. So those those stories go back to 98, and even further back, there are stories back in 1974 in in, uh, in Germany, I believe it was Munich or Frankfurt, um, where uh, um, there was the election that put Joao Havelange into power. There were stories that money was being handed out in envelopes in that hotel. Um, so, I mean, advice to listeners is next time it's a FIFA vote, just like sort of hang out in the hotel. Maybe there's a <laughs> spare envelope somewhere. Um, right. But um, but there were there were certainly last minute things happening in Zurich the night before the vote. So the vote happens in December 2010, and the this this famous now famous now infamous hotel in Zurich, the Bar Lock, is a is a buzzing hive of activity. And there's people from every sort of bidding country camped out all over the place trying to influence voters. Australia has this billionaire, Frank Lowy, who's a big developer who runs uh, shopping malls all over the world. He's there with Elle McPherson, the famous model, mm-hmm. trying to get her to sway votes. Um, the Brits are there with um, Harry, uh, with um, with uh, Gary Lineker and with uh, David, David Cameron and with uh, David Beckham, um, all sort of wandering around the hotel begging people for votes. Um and the Russians are there as well. Um, and, uh, you know, people keep sort of going into hotel rooms and disappearing and reappearing. And it's that kind of jockeying for position. The Brits are buying Johnny Walker Blue for anyone who will drink it. It's that kind of night. And the next day the vote happens. You're listening to the Soccer Hour on KMBR 1050. We will continue our conversation with Ken Bensinger, the author of Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal, coming up next here on the Soccer Hour on KMBR 1050. Welcome back to the Soccer Hour here on KMBR 1050, brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers. We are talking to author Ken Bensinger, who has a book out called Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. This is published by Simon & Schuster. It is indeed available on Amazon.com. You can get it at Barnes & Noble and your local independent book dealers. Ken will be doing a reading at Books, Inc. in Berkeley tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, and hopefully this will be followed by a few pints at a local pub that is yet to be decided upon. Upon, and we're going over the vote which led to Russia getting the 2018 World Cup and not the favorites as England had previously been. Okay, so it, the, the vote happens and the English are stunned because they had been the, the front runners. Was, was that, were bodies around um, soccer or was the FBI and the IRS, was, was, was that the impetus or what was the impetus at that point? to get everybody to look into, hey, what's going on here? How, I guess, how do we get from that point to where we're looking at um, tax evasion? Yeah, so so actually, I mean, funny enough, when that vote happens, it doesn't really immediately affect the case at all because the, the criminal case is already open. And that's important. It's really important that people understand that the U.S. criminal case opened in uh, summer of 2010, you know, five or six months before the actual vote. And why that's important to point out is that there's a common uh, belief, common misconception among uh, soccer fans, particularly in Europe and South America, that this case was open as kind of revenge or sour grapes by the U.S. um, because they didn't get the World Cup in 2022 and instead Qatar did. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I and our audience here in the U.S. know that while we love the sport, 
It doesn't have the political heft that it does in other countries. And the fact that the U.S. didn't get it, in fact, at the time wasn't even front page of news in most papers. Um, it wasn't the kind of thing that would lead Obama or the Department of Justice to go bananas and launch an investigation. Um, but in the rest of the world, it is the kind of thing that would lead to an investigation. And so everyone is convinced that's what happened. And that's why it's so important for the for understanding the case to know that it was already open and in process when that vote happened. In fact, when the results were announced, the, the FBI case agent on it noticed it reading in the daily paper, took it to supervisor, and they just sort of shrugged because from their perspective, it wasn't surprising, but it didn't, it didn't change the case. Um, really, the next big advance in the case um, doesn't come until the fall of 2011. So, you know, nine months or so after, um, after the vote. And the reason that happens is because this fellow we mentioned earlier, Steve Berryman, gets on the scene. Steve Berryman is a career IRS agent. Um, he's the son of an Air Force officer, so he grew up a big chunk of his childhood in, in England mm -hmm. and became a huge soccer fan and um, pretty good player, um, comes back to the U.S., grows up in California's Inland Empire in a time when um, there really wasn't a lot of soccer happening, and so he ends up uh, using his kicking ability to become a place kicker, um, gets a Division One scholarship to be a place kicker, um, but his true passion is soccer. And when he later becomes an IRS agent, he continues to follow the sport, even though his his professional you know, crime fighting is limited to things like uh, um, drug cartels and public corruption and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and then one day he, uh, he he's reading it, basically reading a news alert, a Google news alert, and it mentioned it, it pops up pops a story that mentions that the FBI might be investigating this one American soccer official named Chuck Blazer. Now, Blazer probably is familiar to a lot of your audience. Mm -hmm. He ends up being the most powerful and probably, the, well, probably the most powerful and definitely the most corrupt uh, American soccer official ever. Um, and this really, like, this, this relates a fire under Berryman's, uh, under Berryman's rear because this is exactly the kind of case he's sort of always dreamed of doing. And he can bring something to it that the FBI can't because a little-known fact about criminal investigations in this country is that... Um, only the IRS can look at tax returns. So the FBI can investigate you up and down, but until they get a court order or an IRS agent involved, they can't actually pull your taxes. Um, so, so it turns out the FBI was interested in Blazer. He's a logical person for them to look at because they're looking at FIFA, and he was the most powerful American official. But um, they couldn't; they had no dirt on him because they couldn't look at his tax returns. Berryman shows up in New York, basically talks his way into the case, even though he's a Southern California IRS agent. And once they take him in the case, he says, listen, now that I'm part of the team, we ought to look at this guy's tax returns. Wow. And they, they do. And what they discover is that Blazer, who was uh, a member of the FIFA executive committee for, at that point, I don't know, 14 or so years and had been a, a general secretary of CONCACAF, which, of course, oversees soccer in North and Central America and the Caribbean for 20 or so years, 21 years, um, Blazer, and, uh, and who had been creaming money from the sport year after year, hadn't even bothered to file a tax return in 17 years. Um, wait, wait. So, <laughs> yeah. Seven, 17 years for a guy at that high of a position making ostensibly the money I'm assuming he was making, he's not filing tax returns? He's not filing tax returns and not only that, but he's, he has a college degree in accounting. So I think we Holy can both Lord. suspect <laughs> he knows you're supposed to make a tax return. <laughs> yeah, I mean – so, but do we – I mean, I know he's, he's no longer with us. He's deceased. But did he – was this a self-preservation move or what was his motivation? 
Yeah, I think the story there is this is a guy who, um, uh, who you know, didn't like to make an honest buck. He liked to make a dishonest buck, and he didn't like to pay taxes. And it's so often those things kind of so those kind of things combine. I mean, I've told I, I, people in the IRS have told me that often um, people who are doing all kinds of dirty things would get away with it if they just would would you know try less hard to avoid taxes as well. And <laughs> he didn't. He didn't want to pay taxes on it, so he had all kinds of offshore companies and all kinds of things to hide the income. And the income he did get was always through shell, shell companies, not in his name directly. Um, and to follow the chain of ownership was impossible because it would go through the Cayman Islands or the Bahamas <laughs> or things. And he went to incredible lengths to avoid creating a paper trail that ever indicated he had any income. Right, And so that way he thought he wouldn't have to file taxes because he had no U.S. income uh, uh, that was official anyway. There was no, you know, W-2s, no W-4s that would generate any kind of paper trail with the government. Um, uh, in fact, one person told me that he would go, to, he was a compulsive gambler, he would go to Vegas and play like a whale, but he would refuse to use those loyalty cards, which you people have probably seen where you get like a free room or yeah. a comp drink. He refused to use those because he thought they might generate a paper trail to the government. Um, so that's the lens he went to avoid any kind of paper trail. But, um, you know, from the government's perspective, if they can show you have income and there's no tax return, then you owe that, you owe the tax. And the fact that it came directly to a bank in the Bahamas doesn't excuse you. So once Berryman saw he hadn't filed a tax return, it was up to him to figure out that he had income, which he did in short order. And at that point, it was like, uh, you know, it was a, they say in baseball, a can of corn. It was the easiest, it was the easiest play you could make. We are talking right now with author Ken Bensinger. He's got a book out, Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. This is published by Simon & Schuster. It's available Amazon. You can get it at Barnes Noble. You can also see it at your local independent book dealers. Ken is doing a reading at Books, Inc. in Berkeley on Thursday night at 7 o'clock. And like we discussed earlier, hopefully there will be beers afterwards at a pub or a restaurant that has yet to be announced. Um, I'm feeling better about myself because even though I'm a sports broadcaster i'm still (laughs) still competent enough to file my taxes so how how do we get from that point because like you said this is 2011 to where the u.s um and the justice department is moving forward with this investigation and we've got charges filed in 2014 2015 yeah that's right so the so the so your timing is about right um the next critical thing of course is once you have the goods on chuck blazer well, then you flip him, right? Because what they want to do is they don't want to just bust a guy for avoiding taxes because, you know, that could be the end of it. They put him in jail for taxes and that's the end of the whole case. They want him to sing like a canary. And so what they do is they corner him. They go up to him and they, they call him up and they you get him to meet him and they meet him in the lobby of the Trump Tower where he lives. And they and they say, look, uh, we got some news for you, buddy. You don't have, here's your income, but there's no taxes to back it up. And just so you know... Uh, you know, the statutory penalty for that is five years per violation for the maximum number of years of violation is six. So six times five, you're looking at 30 years in jail. <laughs> and um, that's a lot. It was a death sentence for a guy like that. Yeah. Um, and and so he flipped uh, about as fast as anyone has ever flipped. He flipped in about 15 seconds um, <laughs> and became their first and, and arguably most important uh, cooperator and informant in the case. And what he did is he began helping them gather information on everything in soccer. Um, and he began wearing a wire and recording people in soccer um, and then helping them get goods enough to flip several other people, which they did. And by the time they indicted um, um, many, many people in May 2015, 
um, they had rolled up, uh, gosh, quick count, one, two, three, four, about five other cooperators. So there was about six people cooperating secretly with the investigation by the time on May 27, 2015, um, the world hears that uh, Swiss police have walked into that same hotel we mentioned earlier, the Bar Alac, mm-hmm. and have arrested numerous high-ranking FIFA officials and charged them with corruption. I mean, from the numbers I've heard, and you can tell me whether or not this is correct or incorrect, but... I mean, I heard that the the money that was investigated in this, having changed hands for this bribery and other things we equate to racketeering, are are we talking close to a billion dollars potentially? In terms of the corrupt the amount of, amount of corrupt money being yeah. flown around, well, it's I don't I haven't seen a, I haven't seen a full accounting. I mean, remember the case itself was limited in that they only focused on a few schemes. That there, what what we saw at the end of the case was they looked at a few particular. Um, corruption schemes and then summed up the money in those. But to give you an idea of the scale, one witness, there was ultimately a trial. There was a trial in late 2017, late last year, November and December. And the star witness in the case was an Argentine guy um, who owned uh, or was the, the, the uh, CEO of a company that, that bought and sold television rights. Um, he personally said he had paid $160 million in bribes over a 10-year period. So that's one guy. Um, you know, there's there's many other people just like him paying bribes all over the sport. So a billion is probably a low figure, to be honest with you. I mean, the numbers are gigantic. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's just it's amazing. I guess we shouldn't be that surprised. But when you do quantify the numbers this way, I mean, it is it's staggering. And I want to get back um to one thing you brought up before I forget about it. You talked about the idea that the United States going into this was sour grapes and like you said this was not the russia we're thinking of back in 2010 that we think of today if i recall correctly in 2015 that idea that the united states was trying to take the world cup back after not getting it for 2022 is that something we can look at as kind of russia having their first little meddling in the united states news cycle saying no no this doesn't this isn't legit. It's about the United States being upset about not getting the World Cup. You know, I'm gonna say I'm gonna give you a cookie. That's a great. I've never thought of it that way, but that makes a ton of sense, right? I mean, that's the kind of narrative that Russia would want to spin to divert attention from um, from you know their behavior, and it makes a ton of sense. I mean, I think a lot of the emphasis has been on what Qatar would do to spin it. And I think there's some of that as well. But Russia really is the master at that kind of thing and spreading that kind of story. And I do know, and it's, it's told, uh, some of these stories are told in my book about ways that Russia um, actively tried to interfere in the criminal case once it knew it existed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, um, specifically, the most obvious example is that one of the defendants in the case, one of the people who was arrested in Zurich on that first day, um, ends up not getting extradited to the U.S. Everyone else did, but he did not. And um, as this as this chapter of the book reveals, the reason he didn't, he got extradited instead to Uruguay, is because the Russians interfered, because the Russians got involved and helped his defense team figure out a way to beat the U.S. Um, and um, I remember hearing the story of that and being told from the lawyer who was involved about that um, back in June 2016. So... If we can think back to them, no one was, again, no one was thinking about Russia the way that we think about it now back then. And so 
to hear that story was really chilling to me. Um, it was yeah. uh, lifting a curtain on what kind of things Russia is capable of. You're on the Soccer Hour on KMBR 1050, and we will continue this conversation with author Ken Bensinger, who has a new book out called Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal, published by Simon & Schuster. It is available on Amazon.com, at Barnes & Noble, and at your local independent book dealers. And Ken is going to be doing a reading at Books, Inc. in Berkeley tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, and hopefully this will be followed by some beers at a local pub that has yet to be decided. But again, we are continuing this conversation coming up next on the Soccer Hour on KMBR 1050. Welcome back to the Soccer Hour on KMBR 1050, brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers. We are talking to author Ken Bensinger, who has a new book out called Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. This is published by Simon & Schuster. It is available on Amazon.com. You can get it at Barnes & Noble and your local independent book dealers. And Ken will be doing a reading at Books, Inc. in Berkeley on Thursday night at 7 o'clock. And hopefully this will be followed afterwards by a few pints at a local pub and or restaurant. And again, this is the story story of how Russia essentially bribed their way to the World Cup in 2018. Now, I guess this also brings up the the Christopher Steele angle once again, because Mm -hmm. you had uh, the big story on him and the dossier back in uh, early 2017 about what was going on with with Donald Trump and his campaign and Russia and, you know, what we know is going on right now and just the the continuing investigation. I mean, how at what point are you writing this book and you're kind of thinking to yourself, this is like soccer is just one piece of all this. I mean, this this is as much about what we're looking at with modern Russia as we are looking at with FIFA and the corruption inherent to what we regard FIFA as. Yeah, that's right. And I, I have to be honest with you, it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a strange experience because it's retroactive. I mean, I was reporting out, I started reporting this book in essentially early 2016, January, February 2016. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff I learned about the Russia piece of it was in the summer of 2016, um, which was at the height of the, the presidential campaign, but was not a time when we were talking that much about Russia, just a little bit. And it was only months after I'd already sort of finished that reporting and written my notes on it that I looked back and I thought, oh my goodness, like I didn't even, at the time I didn't even realize what, what I was looking into and how it plays into this much bigger narrative. And now, of course, it makes um, a lot of sense in a, in a kind of troubling way. But I, but I think you're right. I think this, this whole, the way Russia gets involved in soccer should be understood as part of Russia's larger um, plan to, to push forward its power, to assert power in the world. And um, the World Cup is, is is the culmination of that. But we think back again to 2010 when the World Cup vote happened. Vladimir Putin at the time was prime minister of Russia. He had been president under the Russian constitution. It was a term limit situation, so he had to go back to prime minister, but he wanted to run for president again. And he knew that if he won this vote, it could be one of the things he could do to boost popularity at home and help get reelected to president in 2012, which is exactly what happened. And then he knew again that when the World Cup happened in 2018, it would be the beginning of his of his last term or his second uh, reelected term in in the presidency, and it would be a chance to show the world what he was doing. And it's all it all came to, it all came to pass, and we begin to see how soccer is a is sort of a tool um, for geopolitics in a way that you know for those of us who just love to watch uh, men, eleven men kick the ball around against eleven other men in the field, it's, it's a bit troubling, right? Which yeah. I think that. The sport we love is really just a tool of the incredibly powerful men and women who rule the world. 
Uh, we're, again, we're talking to Ken Bensinger right now here on the Soccer Hour KMBR 1050. He's the author of the book Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. So, I mean, we know this led to the downfall of, of Set Blotter, and he's still serving a well, five, six-year suspension for or ban, I should say, from being a part of FIFA. Um, what <laughs> I mean, Russia still gets the World Cup. Um, FIFA, like we saw earlier today, earlier this week, they're you know essentially changing their vernacular in terms of how they regard themselves and say, oh, it's it's not corruption, it's something else. I mean, what what is the what is the big t- picture takeaway here? Is it is it just eye opening, even more so than maybe what we had thought? Or I mean, what's your view on this? Because and I, and I don't mean to sound negative because obviously having all this come to light is good, but it almost feels a little bittersweet because like we alluded to earlier, people are patting Russia on the back for having the greatest World Cup of all time and FIFA is is still FIFA. Yeah, FIFA is still FIFA. And, you know, I mean, I do think that um, that there have been positive things out of this. I do think that um, the the criminal case really did route out, uh, root out a lot of um, uh, really bad actors from the sport, you know, and people who had just been completely um, uh, uh, overwhelmed by, by corruption. Um, and so um, um, I think that's a positive development. I think that's a great development, but I think that, um, that there's just too many people behind them, too many other generations of people who step forward behind them to take their place. And so the, the, uh, the metaphor I think of is uh, often used is that it's a little bit like a cancer. That the cancer that 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 the bot the world sort of world soccer is this living organism. It's got a cancer. It doesn't mean um, that it is a cancer, but it means it's in, it's got this thing in it. And this and the criminal case is sort of like the surgery to remove the tumor, um, but that doesn't yet give you a full bill of, bill of health. You yeah. kind of need to go through the chemo afterwards, and then you have to go through a lot of other things that are basically reformed to really clean up the body. And I think we're in that process now. No one feels great when they're in chemo, and I think that's where soccer is right now. I mean, we've seen some reforms, we've seen some steps towards transparency, and then we've seen some steps backwards, like this thing we discussed earlier about um, FIFA announcing that corruption is no longer a crime or that <laughs> de- defamation, speaking badly about soccer, will get you suspended. Those are pretty significant steps backwards after some steps forward, and um, uh, and that just teaches me that um, it'll take it'll take many more years before you can really clean it up. Now, this obviously Ken has a lot of cinematic and Hollywood qualities to it. And I had read on Soccer America that the, the option for this a book was picked up uh, by Pearl Street Films. Um, I mean, any comment on where that is going? Yeah, so that that's true. That was picked up. Um, right around the time not not long after i got the book deal um because pearl street films it was warner brothers pearl street films and one other production company were involved and they were caught up in the enthusiasm for this story which as you as people will recall was massive um and it was a different news cycle and in 2015 this story the fifa uh, scandal was dominating headlines for two weeks it was just that was the only story people were talking about so i was i was fortunate to be able to get their interest at the time and I'm in frequent conversations with the producers about what to do with this. Um, they they had to wait for me to give them a draft of the manuscript, which I did early this year, and they're they're currently exploring how to do it. I before the book was published, I um, just for fun on Twitter, which people encouraged, I encourage people to check out. I, I did a tweet storm, a sort of a series of tweets about my dream casting for a for a FIFA movie or TV series, and so I have 
Seth Flatter, uh, Jack Warner, Chuck Blazer, kind of the whole cast of characters. And some of them I kind of surprised myself with how similar they look. So uh, that, that's a fun thing to look at. It, um, go ahead. I was going to say, is in your mind, is this a is this a political thriller or is it a uh, is it a spy flick? Because you've got the MI6 angle and the FBI and the IRS. I mean, there's 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 very distinct ways, at least two in my mind, that this movie could go. Well, you know, when I first when I they first picked it up, really in my mind, this was this was a, a personality driven sort of uh, legal type drama about um, the relationship between Chuck Blazer and Jack Warner and the this backstabbing and the treason, the, the, the sort of treachery and that kind of stuff. But as I developed it and learned more and learned more and got more and more sourcing, I realized it was more complex than that and incorporates all those things and really. It's kind of hard for me at this point to imagine it as not a series rather than a movie because there's so much, right? Yeah. They have this, the spy angle, as you mentioned, but also has the, the law enforcement angle, you know, people uh, listening to wiretaps and that kind of stuff. And then um, and then there's also sort of like the real like gangster soprano style piece. I mean, some of these South American soccer officials really operated like the kind of gangsters we'd like Tony Soprano. I mean... The most the most notorious one was this Argentine who's now dead named Julio Grandona who um, who operated out of a you know frightening sketchy gas station in the worst neighborhood of Buenos Aires and would bring these people down and make them sit in a little room with him and um, and force them to pay him huge bribes for soccer rights right and he would put the he would put the arm on all these people and force them to pay him millions of dollars um, or they would never get what they wanted and. You know these scenes are super compelling and super cinematic. So it would be it would be it would pain me to not see some of that in there. <laughs> no, it's it's unbelievable, and uh, I I am very much looking forward to uh, to seeing it, and hopefully, if and when it does come to fruition, and I'm sure it will uh, soon come to encompass uh, far too much of your life um, because that's just that's the way it goes. That's a that's a, a nice byproduct of success. Um, but Ken, man, I know you obviously have stuff to do, and you've been very generous with your time. Um, any closing thoughts here as we look forward to uh, seeing you t- tomorrow night? It'll be Thursday night. The uh, we I should say we're taping this on a Tuesday. The show airs on Wednesday night. You'll be at Books Inc. in Berkeley on Thursday night. Um, so any closing thoughts kind of leading into that? Maybe, um, you know, stuff you want to get into with the audience? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I have to say one thing is I've, I've, this has been a, a little small West Coast book tour, and I was in Portland recently and had an incredible warm reception from uh, the, the fan base of, of their two pro teams up there, mm-hmm. the Timbers and the Thorns. And it was really kind of great. And, and really, I actually was really encouraging sort of about the future of the sport in this country. And I, there's a lot of critical voices of it. And I know there's a lot of people who have problems with the way that soccer is administrated in this country. And I think there's some issues there, but I have to say it's really great to engage with people and talk about that. And there's an open public debate about it. Um, and, Having traveled the world a lot and seeing how things are run in other countries, I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. So I'm hoping that we get a turnout there of people who care about the sport so we can keep talking about that, keep talking about these issues. And also, you know, as a journalist, as an investigative journalist, I hope that, you know, I can uh, find a way to turn some of my work onto on how things work in this country because I think it's important. 
The book is Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal, again published by Simon & Schuster. It is available on Amazon.com. You can get it at Barnes & Noble and, of course, your local independent book dealer. Ken will be doing a reading again tomorrow night at Books, Inc. in Berkeley at 7 o'clock. And, again, the idea is to, after that, uh, go out and get a few pints afterwards. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for your time, and I'm going to try and do everything in my power to get out there on Thursday night uh, to go and – see you in person man this has been enlightening i can't wait to get my hands on the copy of the book and i can't wait to see what hollywood does with this as well ted thank you so much and uh, listen you make it up first points on me (laughs) sounds good my friend again that is ken bensinger author of the book red card how the u.s blew the whistle on the world's biggest sports scandal this is published by simon and schuster it is again available on amazon.com barnes and noble and you can find it at your local independent book dealers and ken will be doing a reading at books inc in berkeley tomorrow night at seven o'clock hopefully this will be followed by a few pints at a local pub and a restaurant i'm going to try and make my way down as well because this seems like an absolutely awesome event and i'd love to see you out there as well do not hesitate to come up and say hi and we can talk about some of the things going on with the earthquakes like in light of the fact that this has been a disappointing season we can talk about Guram Kashia he has been a very pleasant surprise along the back line I wasn't sure what we were going to get from a guy who was on the wrong side of 30 but he's started to lock things down I've been very impressed with Luis Felipe this is one of the trio that came over from Reno 1868 FC he has really been awesome in the defensive midfield I have really liked what I've seen from him he's quick with his decision making he looks upfield to makes the pass he steps into passing lanes very very well I really like what we've gotten out of him and those two players are things that I'd love to talk about uh, in person if you want to get into that we can also talk about what we can expect from the earthquakes over the rest of the season what we think the main problems are heading into the offseason of course it's easy to talk about depth along the back line you can talk about that left back position and in no way does that mean that I'm trying to call out Shea Salinas in any way shape or form I just know that for Shea that's his third best position he is a natural winger he's done an admirable job shifting in at that left back position but I think he'd be just as honest as anyone else and tell you that that's not his natural state he is better as a winger I know it you know it and I think the earthquakes if they want to take a big step forward in 2019 that's another position they need to address there's a lot of stuff to get into and I'd be very happy to talk about this with you in person again uh, tomorrow night at books inc at seven o'clock and then uh, maybe afterwards if we all go and get a uh, couple of beers with Ken Bensinger but as always you've been listening to the soccer hour brought to you by your NorCal Honda dealers we've got the earthquakes and Toronto FC coming up Saturday night. It'll be right here on KMBR 1050. Toronto FC, another team like the Earthquakes. Big expectations in 2018. And they, compared to the expectations for the Earthquakes, have completely fallen off the map. So this will be a really interesting one as well as we look forward to that one on Saturday night at Avaya Stadium as the Earthquakes begin a nice stretch at home where hopefully they can put some points on the table. That wraps it up for another edition of the Soccer Hour here on KMBR 1050. I'm Ted Ramey signing off for the San Jose Earthquakes.